Well, hey, good morning. I want to welcome you to Meadowland Church. It is great to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to worship uh, with you. I'm not exactly sure um, what's going on in here today. Um, there's quite a bit of fashion scarves in the room. And uh, first service had even more fashion scarves. And uh, if you were uh, here a couple weeks ago, or maybe you're new or visiting, you're wanting to stop with that, we were in an Ask Anything series. I was answering questions, and somebody asked a question about fashion and modesty, and I admitted that I'm probably not the guy to talk to about fashion, primarily because I do not understand it. And so I, I talked about fashion scarves or an enigma to me. I don't understand why you would wear scarves when it's warm outside. And um, apparently, apparently, there's more of you who enjoy fashion scarves than me. So I will be wise and just remain quiet this morning and lead us into a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we do worship you. Uh, God, we believe that you're bigger than fashion scarves. And we ask that you would meet with us here this morning. God, that you would speak to us and that you would lead us. God, I pray that you would be exalted in this place. God, that this morning as we've worshipped you, God, we've invited you into this place. God, I pray that you would meet with us as we uh, open up our Bibles to discover your truth and your word. And God, help us to not only hear you, but help us to respond to you, put your truth into action in our lives. So God, we ask that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes. God, that we would hear you and love you and see you this morning. And that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but God, that we would also be doers of the word. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this series called Family Vacation, and what we've been talking about is the idea that a vacation is a journey to a destination with the intent of rest, relaxation, and rejuvenation. And what we've talked about is that maybe over the next couple weeks, you and I together as Meadowland Church could take a journey together, that maybe on that journey it would lead us to a destination with our families that might give us more rest, more relaxation, and more rejuvenation in our families. That maybe as we seek God and pursue him and his word, that maybe he would show up and we would discover um, some things that would be different in our relationships. That maybe God would show up in our marriages and that maybe God would show up in our families and we'd be able to find rest in him. That we would find relaxation because we realize who he is and that he would rejuvenate our lives. And as we were getting ready for this week, I heard this, this story, and I don't know everything about this story, um, so I'm going to fill in a couple blanks and ask you for some creative permission this morning. But I heard a story about two brothers, and these two brothers were, were given um, a piece of land. Let's just say they inherited this piece of land, and it was beautiful, expansive. Um, on one side of the land, there was some farmland. There were some rocky hills. Uh, the coolest part about the land is it was some beachfront properties. There was some ocean view. And as these two brothers inherited this land, they also inherited some money. And as they were talking about what to do with the land, they decided that they would each pick a spot where they would build a home. And, and both brothers desired that this would kind of become the family spot, that forever their families would live in these homes, that they would retire in these homes, that this would just be the spot that brought their families together. Now, because they didn't want to live like door to door to one another, they, they each began to decide where on this piece of property do they want to live. And one brother decided right away, he was kind of a, a water guy, loved the ocean, enjoyed fishing and that kind of stuff. And he said, hey, I'm going to put my house over on the beachfront property. Is that okay with you? And the other brother said, yeah, I think I'm going to go up into the hills. He goes, I would really like the idea to kind of be able to look out over the property. And so the brother who had the beachfront property invested 
um, all of the money that he inherited into that property. Now, the same is true for, for the other brother. All the money that he inherited, he put into that property as well. Now, the difference is, is the, the brother who invested in the beachfront property uh, really wanted to make this house extravagant. He, he was really looking for the wow factor. And so he had invested in uh, custom cabinets, had built-in entertainment systems, had the, the marble countertops, all that stuff, had whirlpools, jacuzzis, his bathrooms had bathrooms, I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, humongous mansion-type house that had the wow factor, and that was really what he was looking for. He wanted people to roll up to his house and go, man, look at this thing. And so he spent time with the builders and with the construction guys and said, listen, I want everything in this, in this house to be pristine and wonderful and really, really extravagant. Now, the other brother had the same amount of money, had the same amount of resources and the same construction company, but he decided that he wanted to invest his money a little bit differently. And so when he built his house, he built a smaller house, a less extravagant house. In fact, uh, he, he just kind of did the bare minimum when it came to this house. It wasn't that extravagant. It was kind of more like a little cabin um, up in the hills. And the brothers would get together and go for walks. And as they would go for walks, they'd kind of land on the, whose house do you think is better? And the one brother who lived by the beach said, man, look at my house. It's huge. Look at all the square footage I've got. He had one side of his house was all windows because he could look out no matter what room you were in and see the ocean. He goes, surely, if we were going to vote, my house would win. My house has marble countertops and all that stuff. And your house is just kind of like a cabin up in, in the hills. And, you know, you could find that anywhere. And I would ask you the similar question. Which of the brothers do you think built the better house? Now, before you make too many assumptions, I, I didn't tell you a piece of the story. And so I'll start again. So there were two brothers who inherited some land. And there was beachfront property, and there was some property up in the hills. And the one brother decided that he would build an extravagant house on the beach. And he did so. But the other brother knew that the piece of property they inherited at times had experienced storms and that there were floodplains within this piece of property. And so when he built, he discovered that he wanted to be a little bit higher up away from the water. In fact, rather than investing money in things like marble countertops, jacuzzis, custom cabinets, and entertainment systems, he invested in a really secure foundation. And in fact, he made sure they dug down pylons deep into the ground. He put his house, in fact, on stilts in case the water came up, that he would still be okay. And because he didn't have the money to buy the marble countertops and all that kind of stuff, he, he rather built more of a, a cabin. But what he knew was this, is no matter what happened, his, ca- his house would be okay. In fact, a few years later, after each brother built their house, exactly that happened. A huge storm came, and as the wind began to blow, as the rains began to beat upon the house, as the floodwaters began to rise, the cabin with the firm foundation stood, and the extravagant mansion was blown and washed away. The question remains, who built the better house? And see, I would argue that the house that remains must be the better house. From a financial standpoint, it was a better investment because it's still around. I kind of come from the camp that if you're going to build something, you should build something once. I don't think you want to build the mansion twice. And see, I think that when you and I talk about our families, I think it's a lot like those two houses. That you and I have to make the decision of what's really important to us in our families. 
And maybe the most important question would be not what kind of amenities do we have in our lives, but what kind of foundation are we building upon? Because what we discover is in the midst of a storm, it seems as though the amenities don't matter much. That when the winds begin to blow, when the tornadoes touch down, when the waters begin to rise, marble countertops are only going to do so much. But when the rains begin to flood and when the wind begins to blow and it feels like the roof's about to blow off, that foundation is really, really significant and really, really important. And if you've ever been in a big storm where you're taking shelter in your home, what you're probably wondering is, how firm is this foundation? And see, Jesus actually tells us that exact parable in Matthew chapter 7. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, I think the question that we probably should be asking when it comes to our families is what kind of foundation are we building upon? Because what both of these guys had in common is that they were both building something. And not only were they both building something, both were building on something. And I think the reality is true for you and for me when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our families. Every single one of us is building. And every single one of us is building something. And that something that we're building is built upon some sort of foundation. See, the question would be is what kind of foundation are you and I building upon? And see, this becomes really, really practical because every single one of us in some way, shape, or form is involved in family. For some of you, you're at that stage of life where you were born into the family you were born into, but you're a part of that family, and you're a part of that building, and you're a part of that foundation. For some of you, you're talking and you're dreaming about the family that you will build one day. And this is the perfect time to say, hey, what kind of foundation do we want to build that upon? And for some of you, you're in the trenches. I mean, you are actively building. You have kids, and if you have kids, that means you have chaos. And you're trying to figure this whole thing out, and how do we do this, and that didn't work, and this should have worked, and what do we? And here's the deal. Like, maybe the most important question is, what foundation are you building upon? In fact, for some of you, you are grandparents. You have kids who are having kids. And I think the question you should ask is, what role can I play in that building? Making sure it's built upon the right foundation. In fact, some of you go, hey, I don't know if I fit any of those categories above. And I go, but you're here. And that means you're a part of this church family. That's one of the things I love about the church is whenever Jesus talks about the church, he talks about a family. They're like, we're just like one great, big, extended family. Some of you are grandparents in the family. Some of you are the weird uncle in the family. And we need all of you. And the question be is, what kind of foundation are we building this family upon? And see, what Jesus says is this. When it comes to building, listen, he, he makes us so easy, right? He says, listen, if you're building, this is how you build. He says, if you hear my words, and if you do my words, you're building upon the rock. Now, he also says, if you hear my words, and you don't do my words, then you're building 
upon the sand. And see, sometimes we make this so incredibly complicated. And sometimes we go, but how do we, how do we, and what do we, and what are the steps, and what are the processes, and what do the books all have to say? And this is Jesus, the Son of God. He says, listen, if you want to build upon the rock, if you hear these words of mine, and you do them, you're like a wise builder. And those of you who hear these words of mine and do not do them, you're like a foolish builder. And now here's what's so important. Is Jesus isn't talking about behavior modification. Jesus isn't saying if you act a certain way. What Jesus is really saying is that if you believe a certain way, it will change the way you build. See, Jesus isn't giving us a to-do list, and I'm not giving us a to-do list. The mistake would be to go home today and be like, we're going to do these things, and every day we're going to check these things off the list, and if we check these things off the list, we must be doing something right. And here's what I tell you. You could check all these things off the list and still meet Jesus. You could still miss him. But what Jesus is saying is what we believe ultimately shows up in our actions, that you cannot separate what we believe with what we do because what we do is informed by what we believe. And he's saying if you believe in him and if you have a relationship with him, if he's the Lord and the Savior of your life, then that would somehow show up in what you do. And Jesus makes this really simple statement because people ask this question all the time. They go, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be on the spiritual journey? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And I think Jesus gives you an answer. He goes, hear these words of mine and do them. See, I absolutely love this because there's this theme, and it's kind of something that I've been wrestling with, but it's this word abide. That's a biblical word, abide. And see, Jesus gives us this idea of a guy who's a gardener. And he says, you know what every gardener wants? is good fruit or good vegetables. Like for those of you that are planting your gardens, you're not going to plant a tomato plant and come out in a couple months and be like, look at this tomato plant. Not one single tomato, but it's so beautiful. Like you're not going to call up your friends and be like, come see my amazing tomato plant. It has bared no fruit. But we should cherish it and we should love it and we should take pictures of it. Listen, if you plant a tomato plant and it bears no fruit, it's worthless. And ultimately, you're going to tear it out so you can plant another tomato plant. And Jesus says, listen, if you get this, he goes, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. Jesus gives this beautiful illustration that he pursues us and that he comes after us, that God came for us, to us, so we could have a relationship with him. And God never gives up on us. His love never fails. And as he comes for us, That if we would turn to him and if he's pursuing us and we pursue him, if he's coming after us and we come after him, some way we connect and there's this abiding in him. That as we hear what he says, we do what he says, and he says that it would change us. That things would show up downstream in our lives because of the relationship we have with him, not because we do religious people and get real serious about good works. See, what Jesus says is ultimately what we believe is what we will do. And when Jesus is giving this illustration, he says, what you believe shows up in what you do, and what you do determines where and how you build. 
And see, I think the reason this is so important for you and I to talk about is because I believe God has designed the family as the classroom of life. I absolutely believe this, that God has designed your family and God has designed my family to be the school of life. There are certain things that you and I are supposed to learn within the context of family. And there are certain things that we learn best within the context of family. And there are certain lessons that are taught best within the context of family. And here's what I want you to think about. Your family, by God's design, is this classroom of life. And what I would hope is for you and I would hope is myself as we walk through this morning is not only would our families be classrooms, but we would be the school of rock. That we would learn some very easy, significant ways to reflect what we believe to our families. So not only would we be teaching and not only would we be building, but we would be building upon the rock. Now here's a couple things that I want to address this morning. For some of you, as we talk about family, and let's just be honest, for some of you, as we talk about Mother's Day, it's not as joyous as it is for some other people. Like, I just want you to know that we're a church of hurting, broken people, and so the reality is this, is as we got ready for this weekend, we knew as many people who were thrilled about it being Mother's Day. There were other people who aren't that thrilled about being Mother's Day. There may be some people that go, hey, I lost her too soon. Maybe other people go, you never met her and you don't know. Like there may even be mothers who are here that are wrestling with some hurts in their hearts. And so that's why we make little of Mother's Day and much of Jesus. And what I want you to know is this is a place that we hope you could find Jesus and the hope and the healing that you can only find in him. And we would love to walk that journey with you. And see, for some of you, as we talk about life, when we talk about family being the classroom of life, you go, oh man, you don't know my family. See, I don't think God designed my family to be the classroom of life. And if he did, oh boy, there were some lessons. And I don't think anybody, any kid, should have had to go through those lessons. See, we recognize that, and here's, here's what I want you to know, that I'm coming from the standpoint this morning of a guy who comes as a product from a broken home. My parents were divorced when I was 10 years old, and I grew up in a home that I don't think any kid should necessarily have to grow up, but I believe mom did her best. In fact, I would even give my father the benefit of the doubt and say I believe that he always loved me, but the problem is is parenting is kind of a close proximity thing. You see, when my parents got divorced, my dad got remarried and moved miles and miles away with a brand new family, there was just too much distance for us to have that relationship I think we should have had because there's something about real life and real time with family isn't there. There's something about when your kid falls and hurts himself that in that moment you get to teach that lesson. There's something about when your kid comes home from school and says, hey, the kids weren't so nice to me today. There's something within those first few minutes that you get to respond and you get to teach. And there's something about when your kid comes home from school and says, hey, somebody asked me out today that you freak out and go, how in the world do I handle this one? See, I missed out on some of that. In fact, my mom forced us to begin going to church For years, I went to church hating church. And my mom would force us to go, and I'll never forget kind of my eighth grade year. She said, you're going to church. You have to go to church. And I was bigger than her, so I said, really? What are you going to do to make me go to church? I said, seriously, what are you going to do? She goes, if you don't go to church, I'll stop feeding you and paying your bills. I said, yes, ma'am, what time are we leaving? (laughs) 
See, I never showed up going to church thinking it was going to be a great experience. In fact, we did multiple services at the church that we started going to, and there was an eighth-grade confirmation class that I had to go to. It was Sunday school. And so I sat around with a bunch of church kids who all believed in something that I didn't really believe in. And so I had to go through the class, and I had to do all the homework, and I was going to graduate confirmation class. And here's what confirmation class was confirming, that I still didn't know Jesus, but I went through the class. And so as we were getting towards the end of that eighth grade confirmation class, there was this thing where everybody in the confirmation class was going to get on stage on a Sunday morning and have some sort of role in Sunday morning. And our teacher said, hey, here's the thing, guys. Dress pants, dress shirt, and a tie. I want you all dressed up on Sunday morning. Had dress pants, had a dress shirt, but I didn't have a tie. Now, now here's the thing. Not, the tie, not having a tie wasn't a big deal. The bigger deal was even if I had a tie, I had no idea how to tie a tie. And so I thought, hey, I'm just not going to go that week. But I had too many good friends, too many people saying, hey, you got to be there, you got to be there, you got to be there. And by the way, you're going to pray at the end of this thing. And so I remember going that Sunday morning looking for an excuse, like thinking maybe if I threw myself in a puddle of mud, I'd have a look at this. This is horrible, you know. And there was this guy who went to our church who was, an, who was a little bit older, and I felt like he was always giving me the stink eye, you know what I'm talking about? Like I'd see him in church, and he was always kind of like, and like I, I wasn't known for great attendance in Sunday school. I was a little persuasive. So I was good at persuading the other kids who were older and had cars who didn't want to go to Sunday school, like, hey, we should get out of here. And so we would skip Sunday school quite often, which I'm not endorsing. I'm just saying that it happened. And somehow this guy always knew the route we were taking to leave church when we were supposed to be in church, and he'd be in his car, and he'd just shake his head no. And I'd look back at him, and I'd shake my head yes, like, see if he'd follow me. He just wouldn't. And I'll never forget... Because I kind of avoided him. I would see him walking down the church. and be like, he's going down that hallway. We're going down the other hallway. I'm out of here. And so I went that Sunday, and I had a tie that I found, but I didn't know how to tie it. And I'll never forget that he looked at me, and he pointed at me like this. I'll never forget. He was like, and I'm like, Jesus, I don't believe in you, but I think I'm going to meet you today. And he came, after, he came at me kind of fast-paced because it was like five minutes we were supposed to be in the service, and I, you know, not in the service. And Kind of grabbed me by the arm and pulled me into the bathroom. And I thought, see, there's ceramic floor in the bathroom. He can clean this mess up. He's going to kill me and just wash me down the drain. And he came he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, to be honest, I don't know how to tie a tie. And he said, well, I'll teach you to tie a tie. I said, bro, we don't have time for that. Like, we, we, I got to get, I, like, if I'm going to get, I got to get. And he said, here's the thing. Today, I'll tie the tie for you. He said, but I'm going to get together with you. Over the next couple of weeks, come, if you come to church 15 minutes early, we'll meet, and I'll teach you to tie a tie. And so I showed up next week thinking, he didn't really mean it. Uh, I'm going to put him to the test. He didn't really mean it. So I showed up the next week, and not only did he show up, but he bought me a tie. And he said, this is not your tie because your other tie is U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, ugly. <laughs> and if you ask my wife, till this day I have an affinity for ugly ties. They look like they've been cut out of couches from the 70s, and I love them. I find them pride, you know, predominantly at Goodwill. And if I had a fashion scarf, maybe I should have put that on, but I didn't. And so, so he, he ties the tie for me. And the next week we get together and he starts teaching me to tie a tie. And I learned, listen, I would tell you this, I learned to tie a tie in a church bathroom. And so you know what happened is once I learned to tie the tie, I realized there were other things that I just didn't get. And so you know who I went to and talked to when I didn't get those things? That guy. 
And, and all of a sudden, when I didn't really know what to do in life, when I didn't know who to turn to in life, I just knew there was a guy at a church who was willing to t- teach me how to tie a tie, which meant he was probably willing to have some other conversations with me. And here's, here's just a point, and we're going to move on. Like, the reason we showed that children's ministry video is because here's, here's the reality. Just as much as we have kids who are part of wonderful homes that will be incredible classrooms for them, we minister to all kinds of kids who don't have wonderful homes that aren't really good classrooms. And see, every single one of those kids mean it when they say they need your help. And see, this isn't a guilt thing. Listen, don't feel guilty. I'm just saying you might be the one that makes an incredible difference in a kid's life. That maybe you would be the one to say, hey, I can teach you to tie that tie. Hey, I can teach you to read that Bible. Hey, I can teach you to do the things that your dad's not around to do. Did you know that we live in a time where every day there are more boys born into homes with no father than there ever has been before in our history. And I hear people grumble all the time. I didn't say this at first service, but I'm a little worked up at this service so you get the real deal, like the filters off. People, people all the time go, this country's going to pot. And I go, you know why? Because we have a bunch of fatherless boys that grow up but never really grow up. We got a bunch of men with driver's license and voting rights and dating relationships that never grew up much past junior high boys. You see, we could change that. So you could get involved in a kid's life and maybe be something significant in their life. And if you're here this morning, maybe even as an adult, and you go, listen, I don't have that relationship, then let somebody in this church be that person for you. And see, in, in Scripture, we see this kid named Timothy. And Timothy had a mom and a grandma. That's all we really knew about him. I think that's the extent of his family. He had a mom and a grandmother. And his mom and his grandmother were doing the best that they could with Timothy. But you know how young boys get. And see, young Timothy meets up with a guy named Paul, who's a leader in the church, an apostle. And this is what Paul tells to Timothy. He says, hey, Timothy, you know how you don't have a dad? And you know how there's certain things you don't know because you don't have a dad there to help you? He said, from now on, I'll be your spiritual father. In fact, he goes on to tell him things like this. I mean, really bold statements. You just follow me as I follow Jesus. Because if you follow me as I follow Jesus, you know who you'll meet in the process? Jesus. See, maybe you're here. Maybe you're a woman who could be that for a girl. Maybe you're a man that could be that for a boy. Maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, there would be a kid that said, I had no idea the direction my life was going to go. And then I met, and they put your name in that blank. And they say, and that was a game changer for me. Because they were there for me, and they loved me, and they gave me significance, and they taught me things about Jesus that I would not know if it were not for them. And see, on one hand, the family is an incredible classroom. But on the other hand, families are broken, which means the classrooms are broken. And it means that you and I have the opportunity to do something significant in people's lives. And so on one hand, I hope if you're here today and you're hurting because of a family situation, I hope that we could help you meet Jesus. And I hope that we could walk alongside you so that you could find the hope and the healing that you need in Jesus. And if you're here today, maybe the reason you're here today is because God's calling you to get out of your comfort zone and to begin to partner with the children's minister, begin to partner with the youth ministry so you could begin to mentor a kid who needs you as a spiritual leader, spiritual friend, maybe even a spiritual mom, spiritual dad, or spiritual grandparent in their life. But I really think this is important 
And we get this right out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 9. This is what God says to his people. And I want you to see how these things flow together. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I've commanded you today, they shall be on your heart. Now watch this. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Don't miss this. These two are not separate. These are connected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And these words that I've spoken to you, have them on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you should write on them the doorposts of the house and your gates. So God says to his people in the Old Testament, he says, listen, because of who I am and because of your love for me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach your children. And how do you want me to teach my children, God? How do you want me to do this? I want you to show them. I want you to talk to them about what you believe. I want you to talk to them about why you do what you do. And not only do I want you to talk to them about it, I want you to show them. Because some of life's greatest lessons aren't taught, they're observed. And he says, so as you go to the marketplace, when you sit at your home, when you're going to the movie theater, when that guy flips you off in traffic, when your boss calls you on the phone and tells you you have to work overtime. He goes, listen, talk to them. And don't only talk to them, but show them. See, this is why this is so important, so important. It's because you and I as parents, the greatest lie that we have been told is that what we do as parents does not matter. It's the greatest lie we've been told. See, we feel like we're going to lose the battle because there's culture, because there's million-dollar corporations out there that want to tell our kids what's cool and what's not cool, how they should act and what they should wear. And eventually your kid will make these things called friends. And your kids will always wrestle with mom and dad says, but they say and what they said and what they feel. And eventually you'll get to a point where you go, man, I... Does it even matter what I do anymore? Like, is it, should I really fight this battle? And here's, here's all I'm going to do to convince you this morning. Is I want to tell you about you. Because while you might feel that about the way you parent, here's what's true about you. As you were growing up, your parents said things and did things that drove you nuts. See, somewhere along the way, you went, I will never do this. I will never say this. I will never be like mom and dad. And see, then somewhere in your life, you got to the point where maybe you just didn't know what to do next. Or maybe you just didn't know how to handle the situation. And you know what you did? And you know what you currently do? You do the stuff you never wanted to do, don't you? Like, you, you've probably said things like me, like when my mom w- was raising us and I was, you know, me. She would say things to me because I, I hung out in my room a lot. And she would say things like, you want me to come down there? And the answer is always, no. And I'm like, dumbest question. And my parents would ask sometimes, do you want me to spank you? No. But I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Thanks for, thanks for asking me. And then you got, you got a spank and you're like, wait, 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 wait. You asked me. I said no. But I, if I said yes, but like... And, and, you know, I said, I'll never say that. That's the dumbest thing. You know what I say to my kids? You need me to come over there? 
No, Dad, I'm good. Thanks for asking. I'm like, you know, my my mom used to walk around. Seriously, my mom used to walk around, probably because my sister and I had a bad habit of leaving the lights on. My mom would walk around and go, oh, did we buy stock in ComEd? Which I always always respond, I hope so. And you know what I do now? I walk around my house. I'm like, why are all these lights on? Are we stockholders in ComEd? And my kids don't even know what that means. Like, we never closed the door behind us. And, and my mom would say things like, oh, we're going to heat the outdoors now. I'm like, man, she's so sarcastic. My kids open the back sliding door, don't close it. I'm like, oh, don't worry. I wanted to heat the outdoors, guys. Don't worry about it. And they're like, whatever, Dad. And see, here's the thing. You do those things, too. In your life, you do things. Not that you ever taught them specifically, but because you observe them time and time and time again, they somehow became a part of you. And this is what I would say to you. If you consistently talk to your kids, if you consistently model the same pattern of behavior to your kids, they will learn it. And not only will they learn it, but here's the secret. One day, when they don't know exactly what to do, they will probably revert back to what you always said and what you always did, which means you and I have an incredible opportunity to model Christ to our kids, to talk to them, to teach them, to show them time and time again. And listen, 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 we say this all the time. None of us is perfect. I'm not perfect. Do not put me up on some sort of parenting pedestal. The only perfect parent is the parent who has not had kids yet. And once you have kids, everything you thought you would do and everything you thought you would not do gets completely blown out of the water, and that's within five minutes of their arrival. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. But if you and I would consistently show them some stuff and teach them some stuff, this is what I think. I think just like when you talk about you own stock in combat, I think they would revert back to these things because they were taught them in your home. In fact, today I want to talk about five things that I think are best taught within your home. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to hit on them briefly, and I'm going to move on, because here's the thing. The application is for you to figure out. The application is for you to go, how does this work in my family, and how am I going to show these to my kids? And here's the deal. For some of you, you're here this morning, and you don't believe in Jesus. So glad that you're here. For some of you, you're here just to make mom happy, and I think that's awesome that you're making mom happy today on Mother's Day. And here, here's, here's what I would tell you. You can completely check out for this part because this isn't a to-do list. This isn't a, hey, if you do this, your life will be better and your kids will behave. These are things that I think we do as Christ followers because we love Jesus and have been saved by him. And that as he works in us, I think these are things that eventually just kind of show up in our lives downstream. What I think is we're not all that good of revealing them to our kids or talking to them with our kids. And I think if we would do these five things, I think these five things are meant to show up in the school of life, in the home. Now, here's what I'd also tell you. If you're here today and you don't believe in this stuff, I would say maybe just give it a try. I would tell you, it, seriously, none of this can hurt you. Like maybe you'll discover that there's something to this. That maybe as you begin to instill one of these or two of these, that you maybe see a difference in the life of your family, in the life of your kids. Here's what I'm going to talk about. Five things that I think are foundational 
in the home. And what I mean by foundational is this. I don't think you learn these things anywhere else. I don't think you learn these anywhere else other than within the family you were born into, the family you're starting, or within God's family. The first one is this. God's word is a foundational matter. God's word is a foundational matter. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus' half-brother James says, listen, here's, here's the key to the word of God. Hear it, do it. Now, this is what's interesting. We've already heard Jesus said, if you want to do it and hear it, that makes you a wise guy. That makes you a wise builder. If you hear his words and do his words, you're wise. If you hear his word and don't do his words, you're a fool. Old Testament, hear my words, do them, and teach them. Now, here's the thing. Are you revealing this to your kids? Like within your family context, is there talk about Scripture? Is there talk about the Bible? Like when you guys are making major decisions within your home, do you ever go back to what does God's Word have to say about this? Now, now let, me give you, let me give you a hint because here's what's happening right now in children's ministry. Right now in children's ministry, your kids, if they're down there, are being taught the Word of God. Now here's what will happen for most of you. You'll get in your car and you'll ride home or you'll get home and somewhere along the way you'll ask your kids, hey, what did you learn today? And like my kids, they'll say this, nothing. Because that's what kids say for some reason. But here's, here's what happens. Your kids will also have all kinds of resources that Laura and her team have put together for you guys. So you can go, well, hey, actually, I got this piece of paper here and it says you learned and you can fill in the blank. Hey, maybe you should try to memorize that Bible verse together. Maybe throughout the week you'll have conversations about, hey, how does this verse apply to our lives? But listen, within the context of family, I think we're supposed to learn that God's word is foundational. That this is not just another book. That this is not something we use to hold up the couch when it's unlevel. This is not another book that just gets put in the shelf. We're not supposed to own 27 Bibles and read none of them. That we show our kids that this is the living, breathing, active, sharper than a double-edged sword, cuts between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit, that when we read this, it is the voice of God given to us by various authors inspired by the Holy Spirit over a few thousand years. And see, we learn that in the home. When do your kids see you, Dad, involved in Scripture? And when do your kids see you, Mom, involved in Scripture? And where do your grandkids see you, Grandma and Grandpa, opening your Bible, that this is the Word of God? The second thing is this, serving. Serving is a foundational matter that we learn in the home. Listen, you never were forced to take a, a class on serving, were you? Like to graduate high school, college, eighth grade, they never said, oh, by the way, you got to take the serving class. I think this is something we learn in the context of home. Now watch this, watch this, because we go over this so fast that they, we miss this. How many of you are germaphobes? Any germaphobes? You just don't like germs and nasty things? Come on. Come on. I am a germaphobe, okay? The reason the Perel things are hung on the wall in this church is for me. Because I shake everybody's hands and I see people walk over to me and I'm like, hey, pastor. And I'm like, mm-mm. Bring it in. Elbows. Right there. Elbows. Elbows. And I, I'm a germaphobe. I'm not, I, like, I'm not like a weird about it. Like, you know, I don't walk around like that, but like, like I go to people's homes and I see them like working in their septic tank and I'm like, you should be wearing gloves. They're like, no, nah, man, this is cool. I know. 
That is not cool. Kurt Rice. Anyway, I'm not a big germ fan, okay? I don't like nasty things. I don't like nasty smells. Like, if somebody takes their shoes off around you and you can smell your feet, I just think that's nasty. Like, we should share things, not that, okay? Don't need to smell your, I do not need to know what's going on between your toes. And you're going, why in the world are you bringing, some of you are like, hmm. see, I'm with you. You're, you're the germaphobe. You smell, you smell corn chips right now. You're like, and you know why? Because corn chips smell like dirty feet. You're welcome. And you're saying, why do you bring this up? Watch this. John chapter 13, starting in verse 12. This is talking about Jesus. This is just days before Jesus will die on the cross, right before the Last Supper. It says, when he had washed their feet. This is Jesus. Holy, magnificent, wonderful God in the flesh. Now you have to ask the questions, whose feet is Jesus washing? Disciples. And now here's, here's the deal. Disciples just got off a long journey. Like no Adidas, no Nike, no Converse. They had leather-bound sandals, which were open-toed and open-footed. Walked for miles. So they got calluses, okay? No tough actin tenactin, all right? So they got some fungus. And I'm just going to assume that them toenails are yellow. And you know what I'm talking about. I, I'm willing to bet Peter's toenails were yellow. Okay, I'm just going to go there. And this is Jesus. I probably didn't clip them that often. You know, like I'm just saying. So here's the deal. So Jesus, holy, magnificent, wonderful Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now watch this, because he gets complete, really, really specific. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Like Jesus goes, listen, I want you to get this. Holy, 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 Jesus, no name above his name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord Jesus. Takes the sandals off his disciples' feet. No tough acting to acting. All kinds of crazy corn chips smelling. And he washes them and he says, do you get this? Goes, do you think you're any greater than I am? Do you think you're more significant than I am? Do you think you sit above me in authority and power? He goes, I came to serve. I came to give myself. I came to get dirty. Jesus says to you and he says to me, if you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. 
See, one of the things I'm really, really convicted by, one of the things I'm really, really upset about, one of the things I'm all kinds of feisty about, is Jesus says that people will know that we belong to him by our love. By the way we love people and by the way we serve people. And yet, for the most part, if you ask people what it means to be a Christian, that's not the first thing that rolls off their mouth, is it? It's usually words like judgmental, harsh, criticizing. Jesus says, listen, get this. It starts in you. You go, I'm not a consumer. I'm a server. It's not about me having my needs fed. It's not about me always being fed. It's not always about me getting my way and having my preferences. It's not about me and my will being done. It's about his will. And if Jesus would come and wash the feet of his disciples and set the example, then I too should serve. Then I too should use my life to help other people. That I too should get out of my comfort zone to make it easy for other people to find Jesus and grow in their faith. And listen, I get it. Like, we show that video, and they're talking about, hey, we need your help in children's ministry. And I get for some of you, you're going, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I should. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work out? What if they find out who I really am? And I get the pressure, and I get the tension. But Jesus says that you and I were created to serve. And that if we truly understand who he is and what he's done, Because of our love for him, because of our obedience to him, somewhere downstream, service will show up. And we would begin to serve other people. And see, this doesn't get taught anywhere else on the planet. And see, what if we raised kids that saw mom and dad serve? And that maybe 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, we had a whole generation of kids that would show up at church on Sunday morning and go, I'm just here to serve. And they go, hey, well, have you ever served before? I go, baby, I've been serving since the day I was born. Been involved in ministry, been on teams. Man, I used to lead small group back in the day in children's ministry when I was six. And they go, it's not a decision, will I serve? It's where will I serve? Because, man, my mom and dad, they taught me that service was foundational. Third one is this, generosity. Generosity. My guess is if you've been all the way even through college, You never took a class on generosity. And I think generosity is one of those foundational matters where we as parents teach our kids how to handle money and how to handle money in such a way that not only does it show that we love Jesus and that he owns us, not our money, but that we would be generous with the things that he's provided with us. And the reason this is so important because Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is Jesus And he says, where your money goes, your heart goes. You can't separate them. They're BFFs. They're inseparable. And where your heart goes, your money goes. That there is a relationship. Wherever one goes, the other goes. And that we could, in our own lives, begin to be generous. In our own lives, we begin to teach ourselves that we belong to Jesus. And one of the things we do because of our love for him is we bring a tithe into the local church. The 10% of our money belongs to Jesus. And here's the thing, here's the thing. I don't want anything from you. This isn't the church needs your money. 
But Jesus tells us that when we tithe, when we take that first 10% and give it to God, what we say to our money is this, you don't own me. Jesus does. And when we give of our money, what we tell our heart is Jesus is our treasure. And our heart will go to him, and if our heart goes to him, then our money will follow. See, it's one of those things where we tell our wallet each month. It's one of the things where I tell my finances each month, you don't own me. I own you. And I belong to Jesus. And see, if you looked at your time, if you looked at your energy, if you looked at your money, the question would be is, where is your heart? And you could discover all of that within those things. And I would love for us to raise children that understand. Like, listen, listen, listen. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I first got saved, and they started talking about tithing, I'm like, yeah, right. I don't have enough money to tithe. And as I begin to grow in my walk, I begin to go, maybe this is something I should do. Maybe this is an area that I should surrender to Jesus. And this was a game changer for me. This was a game changer. I began to discover my family genealogy. I thought there's got to be something in my family that I can be proud of. And so I began to do all this research. And I actually discovered on my mother's side, her dad, my grandfather, had a couple siblings that had a brother. And he and his wife died in a car accident, left behind several children. And so as I was doing this research, I actually got in contact with this guy. He actually emailed me and said, hey, I heard you want to know more about the family. Let's get together. So I drove all the way to Peoria and met with this guy. Never met before. And he said, hey, you can just call me Uncle Tom, even though I'm not really your uncle. I said, okay. And this guy, a little bit older, and we started talking. He said, hey, have you ever heard my story? And I said, no. He said, well, my dad was brothers with your grandfather. I said, okay, I got that. And he said, my parents both died in a car accident. Never heard that story before. I said, wow. And he said, well, your grandfather. He said, your grandfather bought the house that we lived in. And then he hired my grandmother, my mom's mom, and paid her a salary every year to live in that house and raised us. He bought our groceries. He paid our bills. He always made sure we had nice clothes on our backs. He made sure we never had anything, or we never needed anything. We were never in want. And he paid for me and my siblings all to go to college. He said, the reason I became a pharmacist is because your grandfather was a pharmacist. And he took me under his wing and taught me. So when I went to school, I was ahead of the game. See, I'd never heard that story before. Like, I, I never even met my grandfather. He died before I was born. And then to sit down at a coffee shop and meet this guy and say, I am a direct result of your grandfather's generosity. That he saw me as family. And raised me as a son. And I came home from that and I thought, I'm going to do life like Grandpa did it. Like my hope would be for me personally, one day, there would be somebody telling a story about, hey, the generosity that your dad had or that your grandfather had changed my life. In fact, one of the decisions Audrey and I made is, not only do we tithe, but each of our kids sponsors another kid in a foreign country. And so we decided every time we brought a kid into this world, we would sponsor another kid in another country. And so we've been able to do that, and that's been a blessing in our lives. In fact, one of the greatest things for me as a parent, I don't have this all figured out, but one of the greatest things for me as a parent is we're teaching Shane to tithe. 
And so one of the things that's really cool is at Meadowland Church, we send out quarterly statements with your tithe record. And so that each quarter you can kind of look at and say, hey, am I being faithful or could I give more? Hey, do my records match up, you know? And what I love is Shane gets his own quarterly statement in the mail. And he loves it. He opens it up. He's like, this one's mine. And he walks around and he shows it to me. And I'm like, man, soon you're going to outgive me. This is crazy, man. And I love that. What if our kids grew up not having to have that struggle one day? But what if they just, what if they just learned this is one of the things that God's people do? They give. And see, this is my hope. And I hope this is your hope with your kids that if they can trust Jesus with a dime, then maybe one day they'll trust him with a quarter. And if they'll trust him with a quarter, then maybe they'll trust him with 50 cents. And if maybe they'll trust him with 50 cents, maybe they'll trust him with a dollar. And if they'll trust him with one dollar, maybe they'll trust him when they have five dollars. When they have five dollars, maybe ten. Maybe they'll trust him with a hundred dollars. Maybe if they'll trust him when they have a hundred thousand dollars. But here's what I absolutely believe. You and I will not trust Jesus with $100,000 if we don't first trust him with $1. See, my hope would be is that we could have kids who learn generosity from our parents. The fourth one is this. Gospel community is a foundational matter. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love this. The author here says one of the things we do as a church and one of the things we do in gospel community is we love one another and we stir one another up to do good things. That we love one another and we encourage one another and we build one another up so we can be the best possible people that we could be. And this is my question. Do you have this in your life? Who's encouraging you? Who's holding you accountable? Who's calling you to do good things and to pursue Jesus more in your life? And this is why this is such an important question. Because I think we discover that those people are the same people we call when the wind starts blowing, when the tornado touches down, and it sounds like the roof is about to rip off. Because who do you call in those moments? See, I think our kids should learn from us that we do life together. That we as Christians are called to do life with one another. That we'll never be perfect, and it's sometimes really, really messy. But gospel community is a foundational matter. That you and I would be plugged in with one another and do life with one another. And here's, here's, here's the secret ingredient to this, okay? Because sometimes people will show up at church and they'll go, well, you need to help me make friends. I say, I can't help you make friends. I have enough trouble making my own friends. Everybody loves my wife, me. I don't get the callbacks. I don't know what the deal is. And you go, how do I get plugged in? How do I make friends? I go, community is always a byproduct of co-laboring. Community is always a byproduct of co-laboring. Some of my greatest friends are people that I do ministry with because we're in it together, because we do life together, because we work together, because we're trying to climb a hill together, accomplish a goal together. And here's, my, here's what I would guess. If you plug into some sort of community group, if you get serving somewhere, I bet you'll make friends with those people because you're in the trenches together. And if you got plugged into a home group, my guess is you'd begin to find relationships because you're doing some things together. 
And if you're here to go, hey, I need more relationships, here's what I'm telling you. Community is a byproduct of co-laboring. That if you would plug in with some people, begin to do some stuff with some people, all of a sudden you begin to realize, hey, I've got some relationships with people that I didn't have before this whole thing started. The last and final one is this. Why all those things are foundational things, knowing Christ is Savior is the foundation. If anything but Jesus is the foundation, we're in trouble. And life is hard, and when the storms come, it will fall down. But if Jesus is our foundation, then we have security, we have hope, and we have assurance in him who rose from the grave triumphing over Satan, sin, and death. And I love it because this is what John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And my question is this, do you know him? Is he your foundation? See, maybe there's some of you here today because you just came because it's Mother's Day and it was the right thing to do, but here's the question. Maybe the reason you're here is because Jesus wanted to do something significantly more in your life. Like maybe today was the day that Jesus wants to forgive you from your sin and make you his so that you can begin to abide in him. And as you abide in him and you begin to know him more and you begin to follow him, that things will begin to change in your life. And maybe it's the first day that you hear clearly that Jesus came fully God, fully man, died on the cross in your place for your sins. And that he was dead and buried. And that he rose again on the third day. And when you proclaim him as Lord, your sins were buried with him. And when he rose from the grave, you were given new life and righteousness hope in eternity. Maybe for some of us, our first step on this journey today is to respond to Jesus. There might be some of us here today and you go, you know what? You have no idea what my past looks like. You have no idea the sins I have in my life. And here's the good news. God has way more grace than you have sin. You can never out-sin his grace. God has way more love for you then you have the ability to sin. And Jesus has way more power than you could even imagine. And so don't let what you think would prevent you from following Jesus. Don't let you think your sin and your past could stand in the way because that's exactly what he died for. And that's exactly what he rose again for. Let's pray.